Chapter Seven and Eight of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simum. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Seven. Nella and the Prince. It appeared impossible to Theodore Rexall that so cumbrous an article as a corpse could be removed out of his hotel with no trace, no hint no clue as to the time or the manner of the performance of the deed. After the first feeling of surprise, Raxall grew coldly and severely angry. He had a mind to dismiss the entire staff of the hotel. He personally examined the night watchmen, the chambermaids, and all other persons who by chance might or ought to know something of the affair, but without avail. The corpse of Reginald Dimmock had vanished utterly, disappeared like a fleshless spirit. Of course there were the police— but Theodore Rexall held the police in sorry esteem. He acquainted them with the facts, answered their queries with a patient weariness, and expected nothing whatever from that quarter. He also had several interviews with Prince Aribert of Posen, but though the prince was suavity itself, and beyond doubt genuinely concerned about the fate of his dead attendant, yet it seemed to Rexall that he was keeping something back, that he hesitated to say all he knew. Raxall, with characteristic insight, decided that the death of Reginald Dimmock was only a minor event, which had occurred, as it were, on the fringe of some far more profound mystery. And, therefore, he decided to wait, with his eyes very wide open, until something else happened that would throw light on the business. At the moment he took only one measure. He arranged that the theft of Dimmock's body should not appear in the newspapers. It is astonishing how well a secret can be kept when the possessors of the secret are handled with a proper mixture of firmness and persuasion. Raxall managed this very neatly. It was a complicated job, and his success in it rather pleased him. At the same time, he was conscious of being temporarily worsted by an unknown group of schemers, in which he felt convinced that Jules was an important item. He could scarcely look Nella in the eyes. The girl had evidently expected him to unmask this conspiracy at once, with a single stroke of the millionaire's magic wand. She was thoroughly accustomed, in the land of her birth, to seeing him achieve impossible feats. Over there he was a boss. Men trembled before his name. When he wished a thing to happen, well, it happened. If he desired to know a thing, he just knew it. But here, in London, Theodore Rexall was not quite the same Theodore Rexall. He dominated New York, but London, for the most part, seemed not to take much interest in him and there were certainly various persons in London who were capable of snapping their fingers at him, at Theodore Rexall. Neither he nor his daughter could get used to that fact. As for Nella, she concerned herself for a little with the ordinary business of the Bureau, and watched the incomings and outgoings of Prince Aribert with a kindly interest. She perceived what her father had failed to perceive, that His Highness had assumed an attitude of reserve merely to hide the secret distraction and dismay which consumed him. She saw that the poor fellow had no settled plan in his head, and that he was troubled by something which, so far, he had confided to nobody. It came to her knowledge that each morning he walked to and fro on the Victoria Embankment, alone, and apparently with no object. On the third morning she decided that driving exercise on the Embankment would be good for her health, and thereupon ordered a carriage and issued forth, arrayed in a miraculous putty-coloured gown. Near Blackfriars Bridge she met the prince, and the carriage was drawn up by the pavement. "'Good morning, Prince,' she greeted him. "'Are you mistaking this for Hyde Park?' He bowed and smiled. "'I usually walk here in the mornings,' he said. "'You surprise me,' she returned. "'I thought I was the only person in London who preferred the embankment, 
with this view of the river, to the dustiness of Hyde Park. I can't imagine how it is that London will never take exercise anywhere except in that ridiculous park. Now, if they had Central Park... I think the embankment is the finest spot in all London, he said. She leaned a little out of the landau, bringing her face nearer to his. I do believe we are kindred spirits, you and I, she murmured, and then... Au revoir, Prince. One moment, Miss Rexall. His quick tones had a note of entreaty. I'm in a hurry, she fibbed. I'm not merely taking exercise this morning. You have no idea how busy we are. Ah, then I will not trouble you. But I leave the Grand Babylon to-night. Do you? she said. Then will your highness do me the honour of lunching with me to-day in father's room? Father will be out. He is having a day in the city with some stockbroking persons. I shall be charmed, said the prince, and his face showed that he meant it. Nella drove off. If the lunch was a success, that result was due partly to Rocco and partly to Nella. The prince said little beyond what the ordinary rules of the conversational game demanded. His hostess talked much and talked well, but she failed to rouse her guest. When they had had coffee, he took a rather formal leave of her. "'Good-bye, Prince,' she said. "'But I thought—that is, no, I didn't. Good-bye.' "'You thought I wished to discuss something with you. I did. But I have decided that I have no right to burn in your mind with my affairs.' "'But suppose—suppose suppose I wish to be burdened.' "'That is your good nature.' "'Sit down.' she said abruptly, and tell me everything. Mind everything. I adore secrets. Almost before he knew it, he was talking to her, rapidly, eagerly. Why should I wear you with my confidences, he said. I don't know, I cannot tell, but I feel that I must. I feel that you will understand me better than anyone else in the world. And yet, why should you understand me? Again, I don't know. Miss Rexall, I will disclose to you the whole trouble in a word. Prince Eugen, the hereditary Grand Duke of Posen, has disappeared. Four days ago I was to have met him at Ostend. He had affairs in London. He wished me to come with him. I sent Dimmock on in front and waited for Eugen. He did not arrive. I telegraphed back to Cologne, his last stopping-place, and I learned that he had left there in accordance with his programme. I learned also that he had passed through Brussels. It must have been between Brussels and the railway station at Ostend Quay that he disappeared. He was travelling with a single equerry and the equerry too has vanished. I need not explain to you, Miss Rexall, that when a person of the importance of my nephew contrives to get lost, one must proceed cautiously. One cannot advertise for him in the London Times. Such a disappearance must be kept secret. The people at Posen and at Berlin believe that Eugen is in London, here, at this hotel. Or rather, they did so believe. But this morning I received a cipher telegram from, from His Majesty the Emperor, a very peculiar telegram, asking when Eugen might be expected to return to Posen, and requesting that he should go first to Berlin. That telegram was addressed to myself. Now, if the Emperor thought that Eugen was here, why should he have caused the telegram to be addressed to me? I have hesitated for three days, but I can hesitate no longer. I must myself go to the Emperor and acquaint him with the facts. I suppose you've just got to keep straight with him, Nella was on the point of saying, but she checked herself, and substituted, "'The Emperor is your chief, is he not? First among equals, you call him.' "'His Majesty is our overlord,' said Aribert quietly. 
"'Why do you not take immediate steps to inquire as to the whereabouts of your royal nephew?' she asked simply. The affair seemed to her, just then, so plain and straightforward. "'Because one of two things may have happened. Either Eugen may have been, in plain language, abducted, or he may have had his own reasons for changing his programme and keeping in the background, out of reach of telegraph and post and railways. "'What sort of reasons?' "'Do not ask me. In the history of every family there are passages—' He stopped. "'And what was Prince Eugen's object in coming to London?' Herbert hesitated. "'Money,' he said at length. "'As a family we are very poor, poorer than anyone in Berlin suspects.' "'Prince Herbert,' Nella said. "'Shall I tell you what I think?' She leant back in her chair and looked at him out of half-closed eyes. His pale, thin, distinguished face held her gaze as if by some fascination. There could be no mistaking this man for anything else but a prince. "'If you will,' he said. "'Prince Eugen is the victim of a plot.' "'You think so?' "'I am perfectly convinced of it. But why? What can be the object of a plot against him?' "'That is a point of which you should know more than me,' she remarked dryly. "'Ah, perhaps, perhaps.' he said. But, dear Miss Rexel, why are you so sure? There are several reasons, and they are connected with Mr. Dimmock. Did you ever suspect, Your Highness, that that poor young man was not entirely loyal to you? He was absolutely loyal, said the Prince, with all the earnestness of conviction. A thousand pardons, but he was not. Miss Rexel, if any other than yourself made that assertion, I would, I would— "'Consign them to the deepest dungeon in Posen?' she laughed, lightly. "'Listen!' And she told him of the incidents which had occurred in the night preceding his arrival in the hotel. "'Do you mean, Miss Rexel, that there was an understanding between poor Dimmock and this fellow Gilles?' "'There was an understanding.' "'Impossible!' "'Your Highness, the man who wishes to probe a mystery to its root never uses the word impossible. But I will say this for young Mr. Dimmock. I think he repented.' and I think that it was because he repented that he, um, died so suddenly, and that his body was spirited away. "'Why has no one told me these things before?' Herbert exclaimed. "'Princes seldom hear the truth,' she said. He was astonished at her coolness, her firmness of assertion, her air of complete acquaintance with the world. "'Miss Rexel,' he said, "'if you will permit me to say it, I have never in my life met a woman like you.' May I rely on your sympathy, your support? My support, Prince? But how? I do not know, he replied. But you could help me if you would. A woman, when she has brain, always has more brain than a man. Ah, she said ruefully, I have no brains, but I do believe I could help you. What prompted her to make that assertion she could not have explained, even to herself. But she made it, and she had a suspicion, a prescience, that it would be justified though by what means, through what good fortune, was still a mystery to her. "'Go to Berlin,' she said. "'I see that you must do that. You have no alternative. As for the rest, we shall see. Something will occur. I shall be here. My father will be here. You must count us as your friends.' He kissed her hand when he left, and afterwards, when she was alone, she kissed the spot his lips had touched again and again. Now, thinking the matter out in the calmness of solitude, all seemed strange, unreal, uncertain to her. Were conspiracies actually possible nowadays? 
did queer things actually happen in Europe? And did they actually happen in London hotels? She dined with her father that night. "'I hear Prince Aribert has left,' said Theodore Rexall. "'Yes,' she assented. She said not a word about their interview. Chapter 8 Arrival and Departure of the Baroness On the following morning, just before lunch, a lady, accompanied by a maid and a considerable quantity of luggage, came to the Grand Babylon Hotel. She was a plump little old lady, with white hair and an old-fashioned bonnet, and she had a quaint, simple smile of surprise at everything in general. Nevertheless, she gave the impression of belonging to some aristocracy, though not the English aristocracy. Her tone to her maid, whom she addressed in broken English, the girl being apparently English, was distinctly insolent, with the calm, unconscious insolence peculiar to a certain type of continental nobility. The name on the lady's card ran thus, Baroness Zerlinski. She desired rooms on the third floor. It happened that Nella was in the bureau. "'On the third floor, madam?' questioned Nella, in her best clerkly manner. "'I did say on the third floor,' said the plump little old lady. "'We have accommodation on the second floor.' "'I wish to be high up, out of the dust and in the light,' explained the baroness. "'We have no suites on the third floor, madam.' "'Never mind, no matter. Have you not two rooms that communicate?' Nella consulted her books, rather awkwardly. Numbers 122 and 123 communicate. Or is it 121 and 122? The little old lady remarked quickly, and then bit her lip. I beg your pardon. I should have said 121 and 122. At the moment, Nella regarded the Baroness's correction of her figures as a curious chance, but afterwards, when the Baroness had ascended in the lift, the thing struck her as somewhat strange. Perhaps the Baroness Zarlinski had stayed at the hotel before. For the sake of convenience, an index of visitors to the hotel was kept, and the index extended back for thirty years. Nella examined it, but it did not contain the name of Zarlinski. Then it was that Nella began to imagine, what had swiftly crossed her mind when first the Baroness presented herself at the bureau, that the features of the Baroness were remotely familiar to her. She thought not that she had seen the old lady's face before, but that she had seen somewhere, sometime, a face of a similar cast. It occurred to Nella to look at the Almanac de Gotha, that record of all the mazes of continental blue blood, but the Almanac de Gotha made no reference to any barony of Zerlinski. Nella inquired where the baroness meant to take lunch, and was informed that a table had been reserved for her in the dining-room, and she at once decided to lunch in the dining-room herself. Seated in a corner, half hidden by a pillar, she could survey all the guests, and watch each group as it entered or left. Presently the baroness appeared, dressed in black with a tiny lace shawl, despite the June warmth, very stately, very quaint, and gently smiling. Nella observed her intently. The lady ate heartily, working without haste and without delay through the elaborate menu of the luncheon. Nella noticed that she had beautiful white teeth. Then a remarkable thing happened. A cream puff was served to the baroness by way of sweets, and Nella was astonished to see the little lady remove the top, and with a spoon quietly take something from the interior which looked like a piece of folded paper. No one who had not been watching with the eye of a lynx would have noticed anything extraordinary in the action. Indeed, the chances were nine hundred and ninety-nine to one that it would pass unheeded. But, unfortunately for the baroness, it was the thousandth chance that happened. 
Nella jumped up, and, walking over to the baroness, said to her, "'I'm afraid that the tart is not quite nice, your ladyship.' "'Thanks, it is delightful,' said the baroness coldly. Her smile had vanished. "'Who are you? I thought you were the bureau clerk.' "'My father is the owner of this hotel. I thought there was something in the tart which ought not to have been there.' Nella looked the baroness full in the face. The piece of folded paper, to which a little cream had attached itself, lay under the edge of a plate. "'No, thanks.' The baroness smiled her simple smile. Nella departed. She had noticed one trifling thing besides the paper, namely, that the baroness could pronounce the English the sound if she chose. That afternoon, in her own room, Nella sat meditating at the window for a long time, and then she suddenly sprang up, her eyes brightening. "'I know!' she exclaimed, clapping her hands. "'It's Miss Spencer, disguised. Why didn't I think of that before?' Her thoughts ran instantly to Prince Aribert. "'Perhaps I can help him,' she said to herself, and gave a little sigh. She went down to the office and inquired whether the baroness had given any instructions about dinner. She felt that some plan must be formulated. She wanted to get hold of Rocco and put him in the rack. She knew now that Rocco, the unequalled, was also concerned in this mysterious affair. "'The baroness Zerlinski has left about a quarter of an hour ago,' said the attendant. "'But she only arrived this morning.' "'The baroness's maid said that her mistress had received a telegram and must leave at once. "'The baroness paid the bill and went away in a four-wheeler. "'Where to?' "'The trunks were labelled for Ostend. "'Perhaps it was instinct, perhaps it was the mere spirit of adventure. "'But that evening Nella was to be seen of all men on the steamer for Ostend, "'which leaves Dover at eleven p.m. "'She told no one of her intentions, not even her father, "'who was not in the hotel when she left.' She had scribbled a brief note to him, to expect her back in a day or two, and had posted this at Dover. The steamer was the Marie Henriette, a large and luxurious boat, whose staterooms on deck vie with the glories of the Cunard and White Star liners. One of these staterooms, the best, was evidently occupied, for every curtain of its windows was carefully drawn. Nella did not hope that the Baroness was on board. It was quite possible for the Baroness to have caught the eight o'clock steamer and it was also possible for the baroness not to have gone to Ostend at all, but to some other place in an entirely different direction. Nevertheless, Nella had a faint hope that the lady who called herself Zerlinski might be in that curtain stateroom, and throughout the smooth, moonlit voyage she never once relaxed her observation of its doors and its windows. The Marie Henriette arrived in Ostend Harbour punctually at 2 a.m. in the morning. There was her usual heterogeneous, gesticulating crowd on the quay. Nella kept her post near the door of the stateroom, and at length she was rewarded by seeing it open. Four middle-aged Englishmen issued from it. From a glimpse of the interior, Nella saw that they had spent the voyage in card-playing. It would not be too much to say that she was distinctly annoyed. She pretended to be annoyed with circumstances, but really she was annoyed with Nella Rexall. At two in the morning, without luggage, without any companionship, and without a plan of campaign, she found herself in a strange foreign port, a port of evil repute, possessing some of the worst-managed hotels in Europe. She strolled on the quay for a few minutes, and then she saw the smoke of another steamer in the offing. She inquired from an official what that steamer might be, and was told that it was the eight o'clock from Dover, which had broken down, put into Calais for some slight necessary repairs, and was arriving at its destination nearly four hours late. Her mercurial spirits rose again. A minute ago she was regarding herself as no better than a ninny engaged in a wild goose chase. 
Now she felt that, after all, she had been very sagacious and cunning. She was morally sure that she would find the Zalinsky woman on this second steamer, and she took all the credit to herself in advance. Such is human nature. The steamer seemed interminably slow in coming into harbour. Nella walked on the deck for a few minutes to watch it the better. The town was silent and almost deserted. It had a false and sinister aspect. She remembered tales which she had heard of this glittering resort, which in the season holds more scoundrels than any place in Europe, save only Monte Carlo. She remembered that the gilded adventurers of every nation under the sun forgathered there either for business or pleasure, and that some of the most wonderful crimes of the latter half of the century had been schemed and matured in that haunt of cosmopolitan iniquity. When the second steamer arrived, Nella stood at the end of the gangway, close to the ticket collector. The first person to step on shore was, not the Baroness Zelinsky, but Miss Spencer herself. Nella turned aside instantly, hiding her face, and Miss Spencer, carrying a small bag, hurried with assured footsteps to the custom house. It seemed as if she knew the port of Ostend fairly well. The moon shone like day, and Nella had full opportunity to observe her quarry. She could see now quite plainly that the Baroness Zerlinski had been only Miss Spencer in disguise. There was the same gait, the same movement of the head and of the hips. The white hair was easily to be counted for by a wig, and the wrinkles by a paintbrush and some grease paints. Miss Spencer, whose hair was now its old accustomed yellow, got through the custom house without difficulty, and Nella saw her call a closed carriage and say something to the driver. The vehicle drove off. Nella jumped into the next carriage, an open one, that came up. "'Follow that carriage,' she said succinctly to the driver, in French. "'Bien, madame.' The driver whipped up his horse, and the animal shot forward with a terrific clatter over the cobbles. It appeared that this driver was quite accustomed to following other carriages. "'Now I'm fairly in for it,' said Nella to herself. She laughed unsteadily, but her heart was beating with an extraordinary thump. For some time the pursued vehicle kept well in front. It crossed the town nearly from end to end, and plunged into a maze of small streets far on the south side of the Corsal. Then, gradually, Nella's equipage began to overtake it. The first carriage stopped with a jerk before a tall, dark house, and Miss Spencer emerged. Nella called to her driver to stop, but he, determined to be in at the death, was engaged in whipping his horse, and he completely ignored her commands. He drew up triumphantly at the tall, dark house, just at the moment when Miss Spencer disappeared into it. The other carriage drove away. Nella, uncertain what to do, stepped down from her carriage and gave the driver some money. At the same moment a man reopened the door of the house which had closed on Miss Spencer. "'I want to see Miss Spencer,' said Nella impulsively. She couldn't think of anything else to say. "'Miss Spencer?' "'Yes. She's just arrived.' "'It's okay, I suppose,' said the man. "'I guess so,' said Nella, and she walked past him into the house. She was astonished at her own audacity. Miss Spencer was just going into her room off the narrow hall. Nella followed her into the apartment, which was shabbily furnished in the Belgian lodging-house style. "'Well, Miss Spencer,' she greeted the former Baroness Zerlinski, "'I guess you didn't expect to see me. You left our hotel very suddenly this afternoon, and you left it very suddenly a few days ago, and so I've just called to make a few inquiries.' "'To do the lady justice,' Miss Spencer bore the surprising ordeal very well. She did not flinch. She betrayed no emotion. The sole sign of perturbation was in her hurried breathing. "'You have ceased to be the Baroness Zerlinski,' Nella continued. "'May I sit down?' 
"'Certainly. Sit down,' said Miss Spencer, copying the girl's tone. "'You are a fairly smart young woman, that I will say. "'What do you want? Weren't my books all straight?' "'Your books were all straight. I haven't come about your books. "'I have come about the murder of Reginald Dimmock, "'the disappearance of his corpse, and the disappearance of Prince Eugen of Posen. "'I thought you might be able to help me in some investigations which I am making.' "'Miss Spencer's eyes gleamed.' and she stood up and moved swiftly to the mantelpiece. "'You may be a Yankee, but you're a fool,' she said. She took hold of the bell-rope. "'Don't ring that bell if you value your life,' said Nella. "'If what?' Miss Spencer remarked. "'If you value your life,' said Nella calmly, and with the words she pulled from her pocket a very neat and dainty little revolver. End of chapter 7 and 8